Hey guys, well, welcome back to this week's episode of The American Landman. I'm your host, Neil Hogger, land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate, and you found The American Landman podcast where we talk about buying, managing, and selling American land. Well, we are back this week with Al Tomechko, and Al's been on some previous uh, conversations, so look back in the history, uh, and we've been having him talk about food plots in this food plot series. And Al, if you're listening to this uh, for the first time, Al is the president, CEO, and co-founder of Vitalize Seed with Jared Van Hees. And Jared and Al started the seed company, and I got on this uh, process, this one-two system with nitro boost and carbon load, and it is planted on my farm, and I'm coming into my second season, and it's doing great things for my soil, I'm reducing my input costs, and it's just got a lot of benefits. So we're going to talk deeper about that. In the previous couple of episodes, uh, Al talked about various aspects of the one-two system, but today we are going to go deep into soil health and chemistry. And I'm going to let Al talk because I'm going to be honest with you. Before we even get into this, I, I was a little intimidated by this whole conversation because I had a hard time keeping up with the chemistry that Al's talking about, and I know you will too. So if you're listening to this for the first time, you kind of haven't heard the podcast before, you might want to go back in time, listen to those, and maybe work your way to this conversation. And just know that we're going to continue it. A lot of this is going to be over the top of your head, but it's just a good opportunity, as Al says, to stretch your mind and just start to fold in just a little bit more information about soil health and about food plotting versus just throwing some brassica seeds out there, dumping up 300 pounds of triple 19 and waiting for something to grow. There's a better way to do it. So we're going to get into it. I know you're going to enjoy this, but before we start, let's take a moment out for our sponsors and then we'll get right back into the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Vitalize Seed, cycle plant nutrients the way nature intended. The Packer Max HD Cultipacker, 100% of your seed goes down, 100% of your seed comes up. Landgate, data intelligence and marketplace for land and its resources. And First Products Grain Drills, maker of the multi-drill, quality, precision, durability. And now, let's get back to the show. All right, hey Al, welcome to the show once again. Hey Neil. Like my applause meter, that's the crowd, they're going crazy here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really uh, starting to look forward to these uh, weekly or biweekly calls with you, and hopefully the listeners are also enjoying it. But uh, it's always good to chat with you, buddy, and to be back. Well, you know, I've got two or three listeners out there that listen pretty regularly, and uh, definitely they're they're liking it. So hopefully people are and. The soil health thing and this food plotting thing is really catching on. I know guys like you and I are thinking about food plotting, you know, from the moment I plant them until now. I mean, it's just, it's always on my mind. It, it's almost become, I think I enjoy the food plot land management aspect more or as at least as much as the hunting. And honestly, sometimes I think more than the hunting. I just enjoy it that much. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, I, it's funny because it's like as soon as hunting season's over, there's just this amazing amount of relief in a lot of ways, you know, and it's like now I can really enjoy <laughs> enjoy the farm, you know, and it's funny because sometimes uh, you think, gosh, you do all these wor this work so that your hunting's enjoyable, you know, but uh, there's like a, a pressure, at least for me, there's a pressure associated with hunting, you know, trying to fill that buck tag, 
trying to make sure I hit my dough quota. And, and uh, you know, sometimes it feels like work. And um, taking soil tests and soil samples and jumping on the track, that just never feels like work to me. Yeah. That just always is, is so enjoyable. And you don't have to worry about getting up, you know, two hours before light or whatnot, you know. And uh, I don't know. There's just I something agree. about it. It's just a little different. And um, it's really relaxing. I agree. You know, people said you get tractor therapy. And I never really understood what it meant until I started getting out there. And, and now I'm not really you know, plowing up and turning over my soil. And I used to get a lot of sense of satisfaction seeing that, you know, carpet of dirt behind me. And I don't do that so much anymore, but, uh, or I'm doing less of it, I would say, but, uh, yeah, just the time out there to relaxation. And I, I think for me, I, I almost want to get out on my fields too often to look at them and watch them grow. And I document it. And I know during the winter here on these cold nights, we just had a, we just had a big blizzard that came through, dumped a foot, I'm sitting here going through all my old pictures uh, and looking back at the food plots and the crimping and roller crushing and the videos where I would send you and like, oh, look at this. Look at this coming up. This is awesome. And I just, I don't know. I get this huge sense of satisfaction just looking at my stuff and even going online and seeing other guys planting and growing. I don't know what it is, but. You know, it's funny you say that, Neil, because one of my, I mean, I have, <clears throat> Gosh, I don't even know how many cell cameras I have now. I think six or seven on the farm. Um, and then I have numerous other trail cameras, you know, and I run them 20, 24-7, you know, all year round. And some of my favorite pictures are when I get, I don't know, like two, three weeks after planting, especially if you had some good moisture, and you see those green plants coming up through the thatch. Yeah. Yep. there's... Your little Five, babies. Six, ten does, <laughs> or ten deer, I should say. You know, maybe there's a buck that has velvet on his... I, you know, just popping up and you have, uh, you know, some fawns and, and I, I, I just can't help but save those pictures every time. There's just something about it. That's like, man, is this peaceful? Just seeing the image. Yeah, I can relate. I I've taken mine off, um, just because they're eating up so many batteries. I got to get the, uh, solar panels for my tacticams, but I do, I, I will put them out there a little bit before green up, or if I see a field that's really getting hammered, um, craters and they're digging, I might stick it out there, but definitely in the spring I'm watching them because they'll seem to disappear for a little bit. And all of a sudden you get that one warm day in March where you just feel like, ah, you know, it's breaking. And then the rye starts greening up and I'll have 10 to 15 deer all over these plots. And I just know that biology and the worms and everything's starting to work, you know, that they're, they're producing that heat. The sun is warming things up and immediately during a real critical time, they come in and they find them. Uh, they get every little green blade that's popping up. So yeah, I do the same thing. Absolutely. <laughs> what Absolutely. So, well, Hey, in keeping with the uh, series here, uh, we've been talking a lot about vitalized seed, the process of no-till or minimal till and soil health. And we've been kind of like marching down this path. And I know I've been kind of pulling back the reins on you a little bit because you have so much knowledge. But this thing, this idea of soil health and minimal tilling food plots, I think it's fairly new for most people. At least that's what I'm getting from a lot of guys. But the more that they're listening to us talk about this and the vitalized system um, and soil health, it's the light bulbs are coming on because – you know, since the last time we talked, I've sent you a couple people from all over the United States that are listening to this and they are like, I want to do this. Like, tell me more. This It's making sense. So let's keep going on that track. And 
why don't we um, talk in terms of soil health and, or excuse me, soil types and soil health and the system itself and how it works. And I was thinking we just kind of break it down in a couple basic soil types because there's like a continuum, right? And then we could just speak to each one so that any guy, if you're living in Burnett County, Wisconsin, and you've got super sandy soils, well, you're going to get something. You start coming south through Polk, Dunn, on the western Wisconsin in my area, you start getting that sandy loam until you get south and you're in a really good loams. And then other areas are are clay-based, more clay, like up in central Wisconsin. So how's that sound? Does that sound like, like a plan? Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. Well, then let's start with that. Let's start with uh, Sandy. We'll start with that. How do, how do we approach this? Well, so I think it's, um, it's just a very, very good conversation to have, especially in this format, because I get these questions often. And I think having it in a podcast where somebody can listen and give themselves a good baseline and understanding before making the phone call, whether it's to me or anybody else that they're talking to, um, is going to be really helpful, right? It's going to give them a leg up. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to kind of explain some of the things that I would look for, you know, in each one of these scenarios. So let's say Sandy. Well, first off, as we discussed last time, how do we know we have a Sandy soil? So step one, we've identified the area that we want to plant and we are going to go out, we're going to pull soil samples. We're going to then, you know, send the samples to the lab and get the analysis back. So assuming that there, there's, it's an accurate soil sample um, analysis, which of course, there's no reason really to think that it isn't, but <clears throat> we get the soil sample back or the results, and we look at that CEC category, right? Cation, cation exchange capacity um, is what that stands for. That's essentially going to give us the makeup or the type of soil that we have. So if it's between, let's say, 0 and 5 or 0 and 8, we have a lighter soil or a sandier soil. Um, and as you move up that scale, you get heavier soil all the way up to, you know, basically clay. And then 40 and 50 is, is basically just hummus. Um, but let's start with, you know, most, most soils are going to be between 2 and, say, 20 for, for the most part. Of course, there's some that are really heavy, 35 and such. But for the most part, you're between probably 2 and 20. Um, and there's quite a bit of variability in that, you know, what that soil physically looks like within those given categories. So when you've identified your soil type, so let's say a sandier soil, a lower CEC soil, now we want to look at on our, on our soil test this, this thing that keeps coming up, Neil. I keep talking about it. I thought you sound like a broken record, but our base saturation percentages. Um, this is very important from a soil structure perspective. So soil type is one thing. You know, you're not going to alter your soil type very much. However, soil structure is something else. You know, that, that's like the foundation of the soil. And this we are able to control somewhat, right? And this is through <clears throat> amendments. Um, and it's, you're probably going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were trying to limit amendments. Well, we are. We absolutely are. We're trying to limit synthetic fertilizer uses. However, we do want to take advantage of what we know we can through using the correct amendments, excuse me, per a soil test. So what I mean by this is if we have a light sandy soil and we look at our base saturation and our calcium, base saturations are typically going to be your calcium, your magnesium. Um, if your pH is not at seven, you're going to have hydrogen showing up there and then um, potassium. As you 
So for lighter soils, you want your magnesium to be a higher base saturation percentage relative to higher CEC soils. On higher CEC soils, you want your magnesium to be a lower percentage. The reason is, is magnesium, one, can influence your pH, but more importantly, it can influence your soil structure by making your soil tighter because it's a smaller molecule compared to calcium. Calcium is a much larger molecule, okay? So when you have a lot of calcium in your soil, it's very good because plants need calcium, um, but you also add a ton of porosity to your soil. So in sandy soils, you probably need both, right? need both calcium and magnesium. But this is where we'll then look at our pH and we'll say, okay, let's say our pH is 5.5. Typically, when you look at these, a lot of these sandy soils, they're also low on pH. This is where we then can determine what type of lime is best for this application. Because again, we're trying to make our dollars get the most bang for our buck here. So now we're going to say, okay, dol dolmitic lime or dolmite lime is going to be a good source of both calcium and magnesium. And that's going to be what we want to use on that particular soil type. And the reasons being is we're going to want to get that uh, calcium around 60% in low CEC soils is adequate, especially for deer food plots. And uh, we're going to want our magnesium in low CEC soils to be around 20. Um, typically, uh, if you've got it a little bit higher than that, that's not going to be a major issue. Um, and that's typically any soil with the CEC less than eight um, is, is going to be kind of that range we're going to want that to be. Now, this is going to take some time. This is not a you know, one and done process. But this is something that we do want to, you know, be cognizant of over a multiple year time frame because we're literally going to help our soils to have better structure, right, and formation by keeping track of the calcium and magnesium and uh, potassium. Uh, again, potassium, you can't really alter that unless you're willing to put down some potassium-based fertilizer. So unless you're going to be adding, if, if you're wanting to stay all organic, um, you can either foliar feed things, right, with a, a carbon-based is, is a term a lot of people who are selling those types of fertilizer use, um, you know, and you can use spray that onto the plant. Uh, but just recognize that's going to take time because those plants are going to have to break down and then, of course, release that potassium back into the soil profile. For deer food plots, I'm not overly concerned with potassium-based saturation. Um, if, if we're growing, as I, as I like to always say, we, if we were shooting for 240 bushel per acre corn, it would be a different conversation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so that would be my like one, two step for, you know, if, if I had a sandy soil, what I would be looking at from a input perspective. Okay. You know, after that, it's letting biology do the work and it's letting nutrient cycling happen through diverse blends like we offer at Vitalize Seed. It's having this diversity and this biology um, that is going to, especially in reduced tillage scenarios, to feed your fungal networks within the soil. When fungal networks are fed and grow and respirate and do all of the things that we need them to do, right, and they extend their, their network through the soil profile, and they start to break down higher lignin filled crops because now you've had multiple rotations. So now you have thatch laying on top and you need not only bacterial, but also fungal networks to help break down some of those higher carbon, higher lignin filled crops. The fungal networks are just like plants exude things to feed the bacterial and fungal networks. The fungal networks are releasing what's called glomalin. But as Ray Archuleta calls it, just think of it as a biotic glue. You know, so basically a, a glue of life, right? And what those glues do is they help to create soil aggregation or soil aggregates. 
soil aggregation is the idea or the, the physical viewing of soil holding together, right? It's aggregated. It's, it's like, um, how you see like the pores on a sponge almost, right? You can see that it's crumbly, but not dust. You know, there, there's texture to it. It's held together. And what helps to hold that together and create that soil aggregation is the feeding of the fungal networks. Fungal networks are highly and easily disrupted by, by large tillage operations. So in what areas can we really benefit from fungal networks is in low CEC soil, right? So we really need to be cognizant of that. And what benefits fungal networks the best is not only having nutrient cycling, but also having that diversity in root exudation profiles from highly diverse mixes. All right. So me- I'm going to pause there. Yeah. <laughs> see if- Hopefully that was somewhat informational. <laughs> if I had a, uh, if I had some type of uh, meter here that I could push a button, so the applause meter, I might get like a, like a steam whistle blowing because my brain just is about ready to blow up and I'm signaling, okay, overload. All right, so let me because I got to back you up there. So now I'm kind of into this stuff a little bit, and I'm following, and I'm I'm starting. The more I talk to the guys like you, the more I pick up these key words. But I'm telling you, you got to be a chemist, and most guys are not. And so I'm taking you back. So I have sandy soils and my CEC, I don't have it right in front of me, but I'm pretty confident it's less than five. I want to say it's somewhere between two and five. So on the continuum, that's sandier soil, right? Correct. Okay. If I look at my soil, it, it varies a little bit across my farm, but on the Southern end of my farm, I literally have some areas where animals have dug and they've, it's like a beach. It looks like yellow beach sand. Other areas on the north end of the farm are leaning a little bit more towards loamy. And when you pull something up like a like a scoop of I'm digging some trees and I, I take my spade and dig it in there, I'm going to say my aggregation is a little bit better. So my goal, obviously, if people look this up, they want that chocolate cake, coffee ground, aggregate, dark. That's what we're going for, right? Mm-hmm. My question that I had based on the last conversation we had was starting with like getting our pH right. And I ordered a truckload, like big truckload of five ton or 20 tons. I think I had brought in and I got a big pile of white lime. How do, how do I, how's the guy out there to visualize? I see, I see piles of lime on the ag fields around my place. Is that dolomite lime or is that, what's the, was it dolomite or calcium? Are those the two? Yeah, calcitic lime is the other one. Calcitic or dolomite? You'd have to ask the um, co-op that you bought the lime from is the, you know, what is the lime source um, and and see what they can offer to you. Okay. And, you know, like a lot in Ohio, they'll just say lime. Right. So you ask them, um, you don't know if it's it's dolomitic or if it's calcitic. I will say, um, and I could be wrong on this, but in my experiences at least, most of the time, if it is a high calcium lime, it, it will say on their advertise because it's probably going to be a little bit more money. It'll say high cal lime available or something like that. Or they'll say, you know, we can order a high cal lime, um, something like that. But, but typically, um, if it just says lime and you ask, in my experience, it, it is going to be um, dolmite or dolmite. dolmite. Lime. All right. Can you tell by looking at it what it? Which one it is? No, because really. I mean, even even pellet lime um, is that that's just the the source is still going to be either dolomitic or, or calcitic. So okay. um, you still need to either look at the bag, read the bag, or and or um, 
ask the whoever you're buying it from. All right. So if you're, I guess I'm framing up these questions based on my own farm because I'm having a hard time even formulating logical, good questions for the listeners to ask. So I'm going to take you down my path. So on my sandy soil, I want more dolomitic or calcitic lime. So on sandier soils, you would want to use a dolmite or dolmitic lime source. Okay. Um, and a, again, the reason for that is because you're you're most likely, right? This is assuming that your magnesium-based saturation is below ideal. So it's below 20% relative to that CEC type. Um, so what that means is that we want a dolmite lime source because one, we want to increase our pH in most situations. So that's the easy part, changing the pH. You throw lime out, um, it put calcium pushes hydrogen off of the soil colloid, hydrogen and the carbonate aspect of the lime, calcium carbonate, react in the soil profile and it neutralizes the um, soil acidity, right? The magnesium in dolmite lime is going to help to tighten your soil structure in those lighter soils. So this is something, Neil. That's the aggregation we up, happening. It's not. It's it's not quite the aggregation as mar as much as it's pulling the the aggregation is more a. I'm trying to think of how to simplify it. Aggregation is more a function of biology, and this is more of a function of soil chemistry. Um, so what what is happening is that's literally the soil structure in and of itself. So it will make aggregation more likely. But without soil biology, you're not going to have good aggregation forming, if that makes sense. So you so need, you want both in an ideal scenario. I can picture a video where Dr. Grant Woods, I think, did it. He pulled a plant and he, and there was like a plant with hardly anything holding on to the roots. And then there's others where the plant, I think I even saw one of your videos, there was a lot of chocolate cake looking soil on that root structure. You, that's what you're looking for, right? Exactly. And that's called a rhizosheet. And what that means is that there is, um, Dr. Christine Jones does a really, really good job of explaining this. But basically what that means is that the biology is bringing, is, is communicating with the plant species or it's communicating with the plant. So that's why those roots are so quite tightly, or excuse me, but soil is so tightly adhered to the roots that when you pull the root out, the root is not bare. It is literally covered with a um, light coating of soil and it's aggregated on there. It's held together. You can see that it's like little balls of soil almost, right? It's, right. it's held together there. Um, so yes. Yeah, so when, when you're talking about, uh, you know, lime sources, the reason I like to, to highlight the importance of that is because if you were on the other end of this, the spectrum, right, you would not necessarily want to be altering your soil pH with a dolomite lime source if you have a very heavy soil and your, your magnesium is already very high. Because in those situations, you want to add porosity to your soil, right? You want more space um, between the soil forward. So that's where calcium, again, is that larger molecule and can help that out. And that's why you would want to use a high-cal lime in those particular scenarios. Most guys right now, I, I, I know the listeners, you guys send me a message if you're, I'm right. They're, their head's spinning. Can you just boil it down a little bit for like the dumb guys like me and say, what is it? what should you look at? What should you see visually to know, okay, this is healthy or this not healthy? Because I think that's almost how most guys are going to start this process of knowledge 
until they find a guy like you. So I pull, I pull some of my roots and I see roots that don't have soil sticking to it. That's probably not a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. Simple as that. That's where, I think that's where we, there's a little bit of a, um, a two part here, right? Like, so we started this conversation off somewhat talking about like the soil chemistry aspect. And, you know, how do you get that, that structure um, over time in, in pH to be ideal and what you should be shooting for and some things you should be monitoring over time, right? Okay. Then there's the biological aspect of this. And that is, what do we look for in, in our soils? You know, and, and that's exactly right. The smell of it, the look of it, that, like as we discussed, in that dark chocolate cake, you know, seeing the soil aggregates forming. Um, it's pulling out a root and seeing the roots are not bare, but you have connections, you know, or, or covered in, in soil, um, et cetera. So those are things that are just, you know, even just taking a shovel and putting it into the soil, right. And just looking at it and saying, gosh, it looks really compacted. You know, um, another thing you can do is take a Campbell soup can and cut the bottom off of it and cut the top off of it and put it into the ground and pour a bottle of water there. And you can time it if you want or not, but just watch that water and does it infiltrate the soil or does it just sit there stagnant? That alone is going to tell you, do you have enough porosity via high enough calcium in the soil? Um, and, or, you know, do you have enough, um, enough biology creating soil aggregation and root structure and helping to increase, you know, your calcium holding capacity in the soil and the biology in the soil, et cetera. You know, and, and why I'm kind of trying to like create this visual and at the same time really let you go off on all the science is time and time again, the guys that are just planting corn and soybeans, they just go, I got great deer all over my fields and I got great plants and look at them. They, they're growing. It's like, that's the stuff is a fad. I've heard people say it. This whole soil health thing is just a fad, but it's not. It's it's science that we need to get towards. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, the the water holding capacity. I hardly had any rain, but if my soils are healthy, it's not so much the rain that I got. It's the how much was I able to absorb and hold. And these healthier soils from the vitalized seed process will increase the capacity of your soils to hold water and infiltrate that water down into the soil profile. That's, that's why this is healthy. So I'm going to, I'm going to, again, just step back here in this conversation and let you go off on this again, um, ramp it back up, but I guess keep framing this up for the average guy like me that I can't follow all of this chemistry, but bring it back to tin can water filtration test. That makes sense. Am I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I appreciate you you slowing it down because I don't, um, you know, I always try to say there's a lot of people way, way, way more intelligent about this stuff than I, I am, you know, and I, I just want to give, you know, the basic understanding is that, you know, it's uh, what, what's Newton's, Newton, I forget what law it is, but, you know, for every action, there's an opposite, opposite or equal reaction. Yeah. And in soil, it's very, it's very similar, right? So everything that you do, if you till, there's going to be reactions within the soil profile, both biological and uh, chemical, right? Chemistry. These things are happening. There's, there's, that's, that's the whole idea of when we talk about, well, what does tillage do? Well, it does oxidation. Well, that's a chemical. That's, that's chemistry, right? Um, that's redox reaction, redox chemistry, which has been studied for gosh knows how long. 
But what else does it do is there's a biological reaction occurring. And what is that? Well, you're killing fungal networks. That's an impact on the biology. So I think when we talk about soils, it gets very polarizing because there's the people who only want to rely on chemistry and there's the people who only want to rely on biology. You know, and I'm trying to give a interpretation of, of both, you know, or a little bit of insight that we, we really need to have at least somewhat of an understanding of both. Because without that, it's very easy to get caught up in, in you know, the snake oil, if you will, of, um, you know, some of the products that are out there or some of the, the processes that are out there. And this is the only way or this is the highway. So similarly, that's why we have to think about when you put down fertilizer, be it, let's just use nitrogen, for example, that's going to have a reaction that's going to have additional reactions, right? So if I put down fertilizer uh, to fertilize corn, it's going to grow corn, right? You know, nitrogen fertilizer. It's corn we know is going to take that up. But all of the other things that we know also happen to biology, right? Especially with heavy salt-laden fertilizers, especially in food pot scenarios where you're not putting it in like a farmer does, where you're putting in a specific amount per infero, following yield calculators, studying yield maps. You know, that's the whole precision agriculture is, is a science in and of itself. You know what I mean? So when you're just going out there and just rolling out hundreds of pounds of fertilizer, what are some of the negative things that happen there? Well, of course, you know, we know biologically, you know, um, that you reduce your root exudation, you re- reduce your communication with the um, mycorrhizal fungal networks, you reduce your communication with micro- microbes in the soil, which means you reduce your uptake or, uh, yeah, your nutrient uptake, right, or, or assimilation is often how it's referred to. Um, so you're basically force feeding those ind- individual plants, too. But there's also positive, possibly negative impacts on the chemical side of the soil structure, right? So if you have to put too much nitrate fertilizer down, you can literally pull calcium out of your soil. So we know nitrate's a leachable um, nutrient, right? So let's say you, you only need, I'm just using real basic numbers here. Let's say you only need the 50 units of nitrogen to grow your crop, or that's all the crop could maximum assimilate. And you put 300 because that's just what it said on the bag, or that's just what somebody told you on Facebook. That additional nitrogen or nitrate can pull calcium out of your soil. It will literally leach it out of your soil. Well, calcium and magnesium have an inverse correlation. So as calcium is released from your soil because it got pulled away with its excess nitrate, so one, you wasted money, two, it's it's going down or it's going down the waterway, right? It's pulling the calcium away. And now you're increasing your magnesium in your soil profile, which is going to make your soil tighter. So let's say you have an already tight soil and you had determined, hey, I want to use calytic or high cal lime to add porosity to this soil. And now you're just going, yeah, but I still need to use a ton of nit- nitrogen-based fertilizers to do this. You can literally be fighting against yourself because, uh, again, often not talked about is that the synergistic, but also the antagonistic relationships within soils and within nutrients and within, you know, when you're adding amendments, how is one amendment going to fit, you're going to react to another? And I believe it's called the Mulder's diagram. I hopefully pronounced that correctly, um, but it's a basically a circle diagram. You can Google it and it shows all of your major nutrients and how they're related to one another. So if you do put something down because you feel like you still want to use it, and it's in excess, you can impact another nutrient in a positive and or negative synergistic or antagonistic relationship. So again, I'm going to pause there, but I wanted to try to explain 
that we have to kind of look at soils, in my opinion, from the chemical, the biological, and then also how do those meet and what can we do to understand those better. And this is part, this is part three or is this three, four, you know, so I'm trying to dive into the weeds a little bit here, just so people who are interested in that kind of that next step as to what the science is behind all of these discussions that we're having. Um, you know, where does that really stem from and what is that? Are you ready to make a purchase and become the next American landman? Or perhaps you have a track of land that you're ready to sell. Just want to be sure you're working with the most qualified land specialist agent you can find. Well, it all begins with finding the right agent, a land specialist agent. Whitetail Properties Real Estate is the leading land sales broker in the nation. Our mission is simple. We exist to connect the buyer and sellers of American land. Our land specialists are specifically trained to sell land, be it farms and ranches, timber, mineral, or recreational tracts. And we have agents at almost every state of the union waiting to serve you. If you're ready, give me a call, send me a text or an email. I'll ask you a few basic questions and then connect you with my network of the nation's best landmen and land women. We have land specialists in almost every state of the union, coast to coast. Get in touch with me. I'm Neil Hogger. I'm a land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate, and I want to be your guy in the land business. Yeah, the guys that are jumping into this podcast for the first time might want to go back and listen to episode one or two of where we talked to Al as well, or you know, your whatever episode it was that we've had two conversations because we are getting into the weeds a little bit and we're probably losing a lot of people. So go back and listen to some of the other ones. Maybe you don't have to be on this one yet, but if you get into this soil health thing, you're going to come back to it. All right. So anything else to say about Sandy, Sandy soil or are we, we ready to move up the scale a little bit? I think just with Sandy soil, I mean, again, it's a high level bullet points, right? Check your pH. Let's look at the base saturations over time. Let's shoot for that 60% calcium and let's shoot for 20% magnesium in your soil um, and try to reduce or reduce or minimize or eliminate tillage as much as, much as possible. Because from a structure and a fungal network to help create soil aggregation, tillage is not going to be our friend, especially in that soil type. Let me, one question I want to ask you right there. Uh, yesterday I had a conversation with a new, I think a new convert, um, Kyle. Yeah, you'll, I'm talking about you. Yesterday we were talking about this. And we were talking about tillage and, you know, there's the best case scenario, have a grain drill. You don't have to till at all, but he doesn't have that and I don't have that. Uh, down to just broadcasting. You said you've done fine with just broadcasting. Terminate by spraying or crimping maybe and just broadcast and you're going to be good to go, but up your seating rate to, when you do that, probably. What about very, very minimal tillage? Like I heard, I heard one guy tell me, yeah, I, I still till a little bit. I don't want to tell Al this, but I do. And, but what I do is I just take my rototiller and I set the shoes for just two inches. I just, I'm just barely taking the tops of the soil and I'm just roughing it up just to get a little better seed to soil contact. And I said, you know, I thought about that too. I'm glad you actually mentioned that. I was thinking just taking my disc and kind of broadcasting or excuse me, running my disc across the ground, just kind of scarring it more than anything, just to rough it up a little bit, or maybe a harrow drag or something just to rough it up and then tossing my seed on the big seeds will get better soil, uh, touch, uh, com uh seed to soil contact. And I'll put pack or max it in the little seeds won't be buried because they're just going to be pushed in. Am I hurting all that 
life in the soil that I don't want to tear up the mycorrhizal fungi, the seed, the, uh, the, um, root systems. Am I hurting it if I do it that way? I don't think it's enough to be concerned. Um, and I, I can't take this, take credit for this at all, but again, there's a term in agriculture and it's referenced in a lot of books called conservation tillage. Um, and it's doing exactly what you just said, right? You're, you're using tillage, but you're also still leaving 70 to 80% of the thatch cover on soil. Um, another cool thing to look up for anybody listening that is just interested in, and most food plotters aren't going to have access to something like this, Neil, but if you look up some of the Great Plains vertical tillage machines like on YouTube and just watch those run across the prairies of Kansas where they don't want due to the terrain, they, they just can't mobile plow those fields anymore. But they have such residue built up from, you know, really fantastic corn um, yields, right? And in, in the stalks and everything on top of the surface. So they use vertical tillage. It literally just chops up the residue on top of the soil with almost no disturbance to the actual soil profile. Um, so it's a really cool visual for anybody looking for that kind of additional, like, well, what? I can't really understand. Every time I till, I just need to dig eight inches in, right. you know? So, um, so yeah, I absolutely, for the guys, if you don't have a no-till drill and you want to have a little bit, you feel like it's a little bit more successful than just the broadcast method, um, I, I 100 support, I 100% support that. I would much rather have somebody do that and give high-diversity blends a try and work to reduce synthetic input need and work to really get on a regular basis of soil sampling and understanding, um, you know, the, the ins and outs, at least at a high level of soil sampling. I'd much rather have somebody do that than feel like, well, if I don't have a no-till, you know, $10,000 no-till, then this is, isn't yeah, even worth it. I can't do it. Right. That's where the Packer yeah. Max comes in or a Cult of Packer comes into play. It's so important. Absolutely. So rough it up slightly, throw your seed out there, maybe up your seeding rate, 15%, I think, is what you generally recommended. Maybe more. It, it all depends on how much soil you have exposed. If you have a lot, you could probably do less seed. If you don't maybe have, have a lot, you could maybe do the recommended rate. And if it looks thin, come back a second time and throw it on there, and you'll probably be good. So, Okay, that's a good summary of Sandy. Let's move on in the continuum. Yeah, well, I mean, I think just for sake of time and for sake of me not going too, too far into the weeds, maybe we don't hit in the middle. And let's just go to, because I obviously the, stick the to the trouble soils. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, All right. in the middle, you're, you're kind of the best. That's like uh, yeah. our buddy Sam, you know, in Illinois, right? That the soil, you know, is, is black and beautiful. He doesn't and, need and, advice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He, it's perfect. So let's just go to the trouble soils. All right. So, I like you know, it. These higher, higher CEC soils or heavier clay based soils. Okay. So CEC right? rating, where are we at talking now? Above 50 let's, or 50, you said? No, that would be like really high. Let's let's just assume like between. Mm, I mean, let's just say eighteen to twenty-five, just for this conversation. I okay. mean, that's going to be a no noticeably heavier soil. All right. And what does it look like? Tell the, our guys out there. They're going to well, They're going to go out and take a shovel, and it's going to look like. Can you do that? Yeah, it's going to look like a brick factory. You know, I okay. mean, it should be. Yeah. It, it, and it's going to be really depend as well again about um you know what what's been done to that soil you know in the past right like is it is it has it just is it kind of dead right has it just been monocultured or has it just been um fallowed or or, or whatnot but you know you're probably going to be looking at the soil it's going to look it's going to look heavy it's going to feel heavy it's going to look like clay or play-doh if you will um you know in, in um the color is most likely not going to look like that dark Right. Cake. Well, just you in know? my experience on my first farm, Krause Creek, 
Um, in the woods, when I opened up some food plots, those are actually kind of loamy looking. They were a little darker, a little more brownish, kind of light and fluffy even when we tilled it. It wasn't too bad. But then we opened up, I, but right before I sold it, I opened up about six acres. Um, and that was, that was reddish, more red. And it was like, it wasn't aggregating at all. It was actually, mm-hmm. when it was wet, it was slimy. It was really slick. And it, mm-hmm. if it got a lot of rain on it, just held it. It took forever for it to dry out. So northern Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, I know Jeff's listening. That's what he's got. Yeah. So, again, um, you know, and hopefully by the end of this, I, I really hope because I know when you, you – I was a little hesitant to see, but want to do this next step because you're like, I want you to really dive in. And it, it's so <laughs> variable. I know. And, you know, and I learn and I just I, – I have a decent understanding of this stuff, right? But there's so many people who we are know. so brilliant. We're not going to hold you to everything and make you quote uh, – uh, science papers well, I mean, we're just we're just constantly learning right like i mean there's so many times that i'll reassure myself by talking to a soil chemist you know and and we'll go back and forth and, and he, yeah that's a really good question i don't know if i know the answer to that you know or whatever you know and, and so i just want people to understand that this is we're trying to give you a basic idea here as to where to start but really you got to get soil samples and then come up with a plan yeah. But hopefully this is beneficial. So with that being said, if I have a clay clay soil, which hopefully you don't mind this background noise for one second, I'm just going to pull out some of my soil tests here um, because I have them right in my drawer. Um, so I'm looking here uh, at several different soils. So let's this one is none of them are overly heavy. They're all in actually pretty decent ranges, but they're the, the highest is around 16 CEC. Um, so when I look at this, okay. Um, I pulled my, my soil sample. I look at my CEC. Okay, 16. Okay, so that's a pretty nice soil, right? Next thing I'm looking at here is my base saturation. So on this particular one, this is probably the worst example I could have used because it's like it's like almost perfect. But it's 69% calcium base saturation, and the magnesium is 9. So honestly, like when I look at that, I'm like, okay, I'm not really concerned. Either way, I, I could use either lime source on that particular field. Um, the pH is at 6.4. Um, so at that point, I'm like, eh, I'd just like to boost the pH up a little bit and I'm good. Like I, I'm not, um, I'm not concerned with any other, um, other, with any other scenario, right? Because I'm going to look, okay, I need to bump my pH. My calcium and magnesium are both in, in a fine range for that soil type, which again, on a higher CEC soil, you know, 75% calcium base saturation is fine. Magnesium, keeping it around that 10 to 12%, it's fine. Um, that's just kind of basic, basic ranges for it. Um, and then, of course, the potassium, but we're not going to get into potassium for this discussion. Um, so that would be my suggestion. Now, if this is where it gets a little different. So if I pull this soil sample, Neil, and again, we're at a 16 CEC, but let's say that my calcium was at 40% and my magnesium was at 30%. And my pH was still below seven. It needed adjusting, right? I would absolutely want to use a high cal lime source in that scenario. If we go back to our earlier discussion, why is that? It's because calcium adds porosity to the soil. And on heavier soils, as you mentioned, they want to hold water. They're heavy. It's like a brick factory, right? So what do we want to do? We want to add porosity to that. Calcium will help us do that. We want to get that calcium up and we want to reduce the amount of magnesium in the soil type because 
calcium and magnesium are inversely correlated. As the calcium increases with that high-cal lime addiction to increase your pH, your magnesium over time will decrease. Again, this is not an overnight thing. This is a three, four, five-year-plus goal, but it's just something worth monitoring. I'm trying to give the listeners that that next step past just, hey, let's alter the pH. What if we can alter the pH, but also keep in mind our base saturation or soil structure over time? And that's what I'm just trying to add with the the on the chemistry side of this. So um, that would be my recommendation. I will throw a curveball if you're ready for it. Bring it. Now, what would happen if our pH, let's say our pH is 6.8 and our calcium is below where we need it, but our magnesium is higher than we want? Hmm. That's a trigger one, right? Because we don't want to add lime. We don't want to spend the money out lime because our pH is in plenty adequate position to allow us to grow crops, right? So what do we do? Well, that's where you get into the discussion about things like gypsum and or foliar calcium sprays, especially in deer food plots where you're putting a lot of this, these nutrients, assuming the deer don't walk off with everything in their rumen, you're putting a lot of this back into the soil. So that's where you, you don't want to use lime if your pH is adequate. Um, you don't want to look at these base sections, oh, I need more calcium, and just, you know, lime the heck out of your food plots and it's like well now your ph is going to be way higher than you want it because that's not good either so this is where like um william albrecht read a really good book by him um it's pretty high level i mean i wouldn't recommend it to somebody unless you're you're pretty into this but uh he was from like i think in the 1920s that was way ahead of his time but the book is called balancing soils and that's what we're doing here we're just focusing on balancing soils um so again, that's the, the high-level chemical side. Now, let's dive into the biological side and why diverse seed mixes in the one-two system makes sense for high DEC soils as well. Well, because you are having root exudation happening, right, and you're solubilizing more nutrients, and you're creating literally root structures throughout that clay, it's just pushing through it, right? And you have all this diversity, and especially in situations where now you have rye grain almost all winter long. Every time you get a warm spell, it, it's trying to grow. It's photosynthesizing. It's feeding your microbes. You're establishing better fungal networks, which are also helping to create better soil aggregation and break up some of that clay. So in sand, where you're working to create more a tighter structure and you're working to um, aggregate the soil in, in a sense that it's, it's held together. In clay soils, it almost breaks it up to then hold it together more biologically. Hopefully that paints a visual picture for you, but it, it's just holding it together like a brick. There, there's, you need porosity for biology to survive, right? Most of the bacteria that we want to focus on is in the uh, aerobic zone, right? Which means it needs air, right? Um, it's not spelled A-I-R, but think of it as aerobic, Right. That's a really good way to visualize it, why a brick isn't very good for biology. But as you're using these diverse blends and you have tuber production breaking up compaction and you have all of these things, it's why we're able to reduce and eliminate tillage over time um, or through diverse mixes and through um, the one-two process because we're using our root systems to do nature's tillage. So diversity, yeah, so the diversity is key. And I know when I got in to food plotting back in around 2006, 2007, up on my farm in Ashland County, very clay soils, I was following and actually had a very, very well-known plan writer come 
And he was just recommended, he says, just all you got to do is plant rye. Just throw rye out there. You're going to have every deer in the woods that show up. And it's big volume. It's simple. It'll grow on this stuff, no problem. And that's what I did. And I planted rye, and I did. I had a ton of deer. And I know that, um, and I have green food plots. And so I know a guy that's listening to this again. Um, I'm not going to keep saying his name, but he was doing that too. He goes, I just throw rye out there, and the rye did fantastic, or I – then I added some tillage radish and that did really good too. But so it'll work, but you're telling us we need to get diversity. It, diversity is going to work even better. Yeah. And there's multiple reasons for that. So one of the things we ended the last conversation with was discussing, um, you know, nutrient cycling, right? So the reason diversity is important is for multiple reasons. One, the physical, again, you know, I, I try to break these things down, right? So the physical disturbance to the soil. And what I mean by that is, the variation in root structure. You know, if when you have a, a sunflower growing next to a soybean, growing next to a clover plant, growing next to a vetch plant, every single one of those, one has different root exudation profiles, but also has different root structure. Some are taproot plants, some are not, right? Like, so what are we doing? Well, we're, we're gathering nutrients from different levels of the soil profile and also by volume increasing the microbial populations within that given area, right? Because now you have root exudation happening way down here you know, from the taproot of a sunflower for talking purposes, and you have, um, you know, maybe a shallow growing clover root system that's doing something different uh, near the top of the surface for, you know, for simplistic uh, explanation. So that's number one. Um, you know, obviously then you also like in the fall plant, you literally have the physical disturbance of like tubers being produced. It's, I mean, physically forcing its, its tuber to be produced within the soil profile, right? Which is breaking up compaction and doing things. That's why you see more and more and more and more farmers who are using cover crops or using um, tillage radish. You know, it's just, it just does an incredible job of, of breaking up compaction. Can I ask um, you a question in regards to tillage radish? So I planted those on my farm and I've seen guys on other farms and their videos. And I, I don't know if there's any relevance, but I noticed that a lot of that tillage radish is actually growing quite a bit above the ground. Is that because of the compaction? Does that have any relationship to that? It's like it's not able to push downward, so the growth actually happens upward? Um, I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, so I think that that's just somewhat nature of how they how they grow. But if you pull them out, they'll typically have at least half of oh, yeah. their yeah. tuber down below, All and right. then their taproot um, goes even further below that. I've seen pictures so, of guys with like, gosh, you know, 12, 18-inch tillage radish. They're huge. Mine didn't oh, get that yeah. big, but I had a lot above ground. So I was just wondering, God, do I have a comp compaction issue? But maybe not. It's, it's difficult, in my opinion, to get them lar that large, especially in food plotting uh, world, because of the, the, well, if you have a decently high deer density, because it seems that the deer, for whatever reason, they just love radish. They do. Over, over turnips, for sure. Um, so that's something that, to also keep in mind. But I just, I love them. I think they're a great, a great crop. Yeah, I noticed, uh, I know we're getting off on a little tangent here, but I noticed when I put tillage radish on, I had I had herds of deer in my fields eating the tops and then later on the um, the tuber. And I still get, they'd still come in for the radish, or excuse me, the, the, the uh, turnips, not quite as much, I would say. And I'm wondering when guys say, yeah, I planted brassicas, they're planting a tuber, probably purple tops or sugar beets. They're not coming in because of that. If they planted tillage radish, think they do better deer attraction wise? It, it, it very well could be. Um, you know, it, it seems like guys have 
different opinions on on that and different levels of, of uh, you know attractiveness depending on the brassicas in which they're planting. In my experiences, I will tell you that um, the deer seem to eat all of them and they eat them all pretty regularly. Uh, but I also think that that has something to do with you know the the soil and the microbial communications with those plants and that those plants aren't being force fed any um, right. any nutrients. Right? I haven't used fertilizer. So I think that they're just literally more nutrient dense. And after multiple years, because deer, you know, it's a learned, somewhat of a learned behavior, right? They learn that food plot's there. They learn what it tastes like. They bring their fawns there. Well, a couple of years later, those fawns are now adults, you know, and uh, it, it just seems like those deer get really accustomed to to eating those. So for, in my scenario, um, I do notice a preference over radish, but I don't have the issue where guys go, oh, I don't, deer don't eat my, my turnips until, uh, you know, what, I don't know, January or whatever, whatever the, the term is, is used now. Uh, and, you know, I don't see that. I see them eating, eating the bulbs, the tops, everything, uh, just about as soon as, as soon as they can. Um, so th- that's just, you know, my observations on okay. that. Okay. All right. Well, I took you away from but, clay soils a little bit. Sorry about that. No, it's okay because what we were talking about is diversity. Why is that diversity important? And, you know, we've talked quite a bit on most of these, these series, and uh, you know, I have to admit, I'm I'm a little intimidated by this conversation more so than the others. I just feel like it's been it's hard to articulate the complexities. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that I'm doing a decent job of it. But I, I will say that when you're you're talking about highly diverse mixes like ours, there's also this this idea that when if you plant a monoculture of brassicas, right, monoculture, let's just say purple top turnips. You can Google this. They're, they are non-mycorrhizal, which means when they, they, they'll have root exudation occurring, right? But they are not going to be communicating with your mycorrhizal fungi. Well, if your mycorrhizal fungi has nothing to communicate with, and, and then that's not good, right? That you're talking about fungal networks not being able to be well established. So diversity is incredible because what it allows you to do, and this is what I find most interesting, is although brassicas in most cases are non-mycorrhizal, in highly diverse systems, these brilliant microbiologists have found that brassicas are able to take advantage of the mycorrhizal network. So what does that mean? Well, it means better nutrient absorption. It means better uh, drought resistance. It means better water usage for the plants. Um, it means better nutrient trade-off, right, for the other plants within that, that mycorrhizal network or mycorrhizal um, system. So, you know, I always like to really simplify it. Let's say there's a rye grain plant growing next to a turnip and the rye doesn't need that much water because it has a more robust root system and the turnip does because they're growing in diverse systems, in well-functioning microbial systems. The brassica is now, because of those things that I just defined, able to take advantage of the mycorrhizal network where if it was growing as a monoculture, it wouldn't be able to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so, and, and a lot of guys are doing that, doing that monoculture, beautiful, big, leafy brassicas and bulbs, and they're yanking them out of the ground. And look at this. You know, you see that in the hero shots all the time. Absolutely. And you also hear the, you know, unfortunately, you'll, you can almost, anybody who's planted a lot of monoculture brassica plots is probably lying that they don't admit that they've had years where they're like, I don't know what happened, a fungal issue happened, um, a pest issue happened, a parasitic issue, however they define it, right? But they'll say like something happened that eliminated my entire crop. And, you know, sometimes they'll just say things like, I think my soil is just overly depleted because I planted up too many years in a row. Um, but there's also the idea that you don't have the diversity that's literally just balancing things out in the way that it's supposed to, you know, um, in the way that allows these things to be, you know, to communicate with one another. 
Um, so that's another benefit of, of diversity, as well as the idea of, I think we talked about this in the last, um, the last podcast, but just because of all these different roots systems in the exudation that's happening is you have different nutrient solubility happening, right? So that's important as well. You know, if you need, you have all this phosphorus, for example, you, you have a heavy soil and you have 20,000 pounds per acre of phosphorus, but none of it's bioavailable because it's all bound up in the soil. Well, now you have all these different root structures growing, you know, pretty much 24-7, right? And they're working to create this phosphorus now in a form that is bioavailable. And, you know, same with nitrogen and all the other nutrients. And now these plants are absorbing these things in a form that's less stressful to the plant. Because as we started to touch on last week, you know, when a plant absorbs a nutrient that's force-fed to it, and it's, it's it can be very stressful for the plant to then convert that nutrient in the way that it, in which it needs to so that it's, you know, a digestible protein example for a ruminant animal to have. So, again, very high level here, but this diversity helps nutrient uptake. That's why over time you can reduce your need for input because you're essentially helping to make those bioavailable that's already in the soil profile, Right. And that's why when you and I spoke last and I, I referenced that um, that article I had written, uh, you know, where we pulled the tissue sampling. And, you know, what is, I think, it, if, it, if my memory serves me, Neil, the potassium on average that was brought up on those two fields that have never had an ounce of potassium fertilizer. And that was all in the above ground cover crop that was going to be terminated and put right back into the soil was 80 pounds to the acre of potassium. Well, where did that come from? That came from biology, buddy. That came from biology, making that potassium available and having those plants assimilate it and then take it up into the, the plant structure. And then, of course, you know, it was a summertime planting. It was our nitro boost. So there's tons for deer to eat at that time. So it didn't all walk off the field. You know, the fields were chest high and all of that got terminated and put right back into the soil or at least on top of the soil. So over time, it will be broken down and released back into the soil profile. Al, this goes way beyond just putting down 300 pounds of triple 19 and calling it a day, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. Yeah. yeah. Well, Al, you know, I, hey, buddy, I don't mean to cut you off, but we, we're at an hour, man. We are wow. at an hour and I think we got to, I think we got to stop and we have to leave a little bit for the next conversation because now I think we got to have another one and we got to keep well, this think, conversation I going. I think the next conversation has to be about nutrient cycling. You know? oh, all right. I, I just think that we need to talk about, okay, now we've got all these things figured out. We've got soil structure. At least we have a plan, right? Again, I don't, I don't want anybody to think that any of this is supposed to happen overnight. We got a plan. We're sticking to the one-two system. But what does it mean? And why does it work? And why why do we want to be cognizant of how much? You know, why don't we just put eight, a thousand pounds of, of rye down an acre? The more, the better, right? So, you know, why don't and, and we can discuss why it's important to maximize that nutrient cycling, um, you know, from one planting to the next, and uh, and why that further helps to release a lot of those nutrients that I just discussed that are above ground. Well, how, okay, now we, we assimilated them. How do we get them back into that next planting to help reduce our further, you know, further reduce our need for synthetic input? Right. So as always, buddy, it's a pleasure talking yeah. with you. And um, I, I really appreciate it. Well, as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. This is a process. So we'll have you back. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in and uh, just talking about this and kind of 
expanding the knowledge base of the guys that listen to this. And, and again, listeners, if, if this is the first conversation you heard of Al, make sure you go back and kind of listen to the other couple, couple conversations. It'll kind of set you up for this because this is some high-level stuff. We let Al, the mad scientist of soil health, kind of go off on this a little bit. But Al, throw out your contacts uh, where people can learn about your seed mixes, uh, anything else you want to give them so they can jump on the bandwagon. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks as always. Uh, yeah, Albert, uh, again, vitalizefeed.com, contact us page is the best way. Uh, my email and phone is on there. Um, email call, text me. Email is typically the best, um, you know, but uh, I appreciate it. Whether you, you use our mixes or not, if you just want to have a conversation to better understand some of these things we discussed, or if it's something I don't know or don't, um, you know, don't understand 100%, I'm not afraid to answer that either, and, and uh, I'll work to get you an answer. You know, um, so please reach out and uh, Neil, thanks again. Awesome. Buddy. I really appreciate it. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. See ya. All right. I tell you, I think I got steam coming out of my ears. I was almost on uh, overload there, but it's, you know, and a lot of you guys are probably like me. I'm learning this stuff. I didn't even throughout this whole podcast, I almost didn't even know what questions to ask. So I just kind of let Al talk about this. And um, I think what we're going to do, we're going to continue having this series of food plots and have Al come back because um, there's more to talk about. And maybe we'll just get into, you know, why should we plant diversity? And because you guys just want to grow deer or just have deer and grow some plants. And, and but, hey, it doesn't hurt to increase your soil health and uh, maybe save some money along the way. So stay tuned for more of those. We're going to have Al back. But hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you do me a favor, uh, leave me a review. Hit five stars if you like with the content. The, the The podcast is growing. I got some great statistics last week where we're, we're listened to in five countries, which blew me away. And we are in the top uh, percentage of the number of downloads uh, for this type of, of um podcast. So it seems to be working. You guys are enjoying it and I can't do without you guys. And I'm going to keep trying to bring good content. So if you want to hear something I'm not talking about, please give me a call and let me know. Hey guys, as I always say, I'm Neil Hogger and I'm a land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate. I'd like to be your guy in the land business. If you're buying or selling land anywhere in the United States, I've got brothers and sisters with Whitetail Properties all over the place. Give me a call. I'll ask you a few key questions and then I'll get you to the right guy or girl that can help you buy or sell your American land. I pre hope you appreciated this uh, conversation. I want to thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you real soon.